Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here to hear your word this morning. And Lord, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear your word proclaimed and explained. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we pray that the meditations of all of our hearts and the word of my, words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do you take medicine? You get sick, you go to the doctor, and when they figure out the prop- what the problem is, they give you a prescription. Or, or, and Stuart will probably fill it out for you. They, you go and you get a medicine to help solve the problem. You know, sometimes there are some negative side effects of taking medicine, but we take medicine for the overwhelming benefit that it will give us, the positive benefits. We want the good side effects of medicine that bring healing, wholeness, even if we have to put up with a few uh, not-so-pleasant side effects along the way. But the thing is, though, if you never take the medicine, you never get the good side effects. Today we have a passage that tells us about the side effects of sharing the gospel in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. When the good news of Jesus Christ is shared with people, things happen, good side effects. Some of them are really good. Some of the gospel side effects are unexpected bonuses. Some gospel side effects aren't particularly fun, but there's still benefits that override the negative factors. Gospel side effects that we're going to see in this passage. This passage is packed full of stuff. We can't afford to spend time looking at every little quirky thing that happens in this passage. But we're going to look and we're going to see the four um, big gospel side effects that we see coming out, the four big benefits that come out of this passage. So the first gospel side effect is that when, when the gospel is shared, we get the whole gospel for a full faith. In verse 1 to 6, we get a little story about what happens when Paul shares the gospel with folks who haven't quite got all the pieces yet. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul travelled through Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. He was shooting through, he was, he, was, he, was, he was on path, he needed to get back to Jerusalem and he wanted to go visit home. So he shot through Ephesus and they, while he was there, they said, oh, can you please stay a while? And he said, no, sorry, got to keep going, but I'll come back if I can. And so while Paul was heading back to Jerusalem, we heard a story about what happened in after him with Apollos, who was a guy, he was a switched-on guy, he was a preacher and he was a teacher, but he hadn't quite got all the pieces of faith. And so Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and they gave him, uh, they instructed him, he humbly received that, and then he was better equipped to share the gospel. And so after that, Apollos, uh, he went off to Corinth and the region around Corinth, while Paul was on his way back towards Ephesus, travelling inland. And that's where our story is picking up this morning, with Paul on his way back and Apollos over in Corinth, which you see in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. So to get you in the picture with this map, Paul has come down through Ephesus over here, and he's he's sailed back home, gone to Jerusalem, gone home to Antioch, 
And then he has traveled through the inland country on his way back to Ephesus. He's visiting churches that he's already visited or planted himself, encouraging the believers. And then he gets back to Ephesus. And there he finds some disciples who were in a similar boat to Apollos in the previous chapter, in that they had some of the pieces, but they didn't have everything quite lined up for full faith. They weren't quite saved yet. They looked like believers. Paul calls them disciples. But Paul wants to suss out how much they knew and how mature their faith was. So he starts questioning them from verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So here we have some people who are learners, they're disciples, but they're missing something. They don't have the right components to be saved quite yet. They were close to Christianity, but they weren't over the line. Uh, The saying is close, but no cigar. And the proof that they're not saved yet, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Throughout Acts, the sign that people, that salvation is going out and that people have entered into salvation is that they receive the Holy Spirit. We have plenty of examples across Acts of people who weren't quite over the line and they needed somebody to bring the gospel to them and then they received the Holy Spirit. People like Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch who needed Philip to come along and to share with him. And then they received the good news about Jesus in faith and they're baptized. And often the Holy Spirit is poured out in a special way. And this is what happens in our passage Looking from verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Uh, I don't know, did I miss the bit that said, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord? Because that's the important bit. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. So these folks were essentially living in the Old Testament. They'd, they'd come to the culmination of the Old Testament, which was John the Baptist. And they were still waiting for the coming one, the Messiah. And then Paul turns up and tells them that Jesus has arrived. And so they enter into New Testament faith. They, were, they went from a baptism of expectation into a baptism of fulfillment. It's a bit like pregnancy. We have several, among others, several mothers among us. We, we say that a, that a pregnant mother is expecting. A pregnant mother lives in expectation of the child which is coming. And the child is the fulfillment of the expectation. And so once the child's arrived, the pregnancy is over. It may be looked back on with joy or or with displeasure. But once the child is here, there's no more pregnancy. It's done away with. It's over. These disciples in Ephesus were still living as though pregnant when the child had arrived. And on hearing the good news that the child was here, a child who would be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, they took the sign of faith, which is baptism, and they entered into salvation. Then they received the Holy Spirit and God poured out His Spirit in a special way to show them that the deal was done with outward, external, miraculous things. 
Some people like to look, look at this passage and they like to say, oh, well, look, there's two kinds of baptism. There's your physical baptism and then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what's going on here. These people hadn't received the baptism in Jesus' name. The assumption of the Bible is that if you have been baptized, then you have the Spirit. And that's how Paul talks. Have you received the Spirit? No. Well, have you been baptized in Jesus' name? And what were you baptized into? There's an inseparable connection between faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. The connection is so close that sometimes in the Bible it seems as though they overlap and they're talking about the same thing. Paul tells the Ephesians later on in a letter that he writes to them that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's no such thing as a second baptism or as a baptism of the Holy Spirit that is somehow different to the baptism that we receive in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's only Christian baptism and other baptisms. But we can only truly believe and enter into the fullness of faith if somebody actually comes and shares the gospel with us. We need someone like Paul to come along and share the good news. A Christian can only enter into full faith or become a Christian in the first place when the gospel is shared. So what can we learn from this part of the passage? We're not likely to run into any of John the Baptist's disciples during the week, but there are still some good things to learn from this experience. Firstly, when Firstly, we need to be humble enough to be instructed in the faith. We need to be humble enough to be instructed in the faith. We can't assume that we have it all together. We're learners, we're disciples, we must be aware of our deficient condition, that we still have a way to go. So, be humble. Secondly, we need to be willing to share the gospel with those who are following in our footsteps. It's not just non-believers who need to hear the gospel or people who are really close to believing. All of us need to hear the gospel. Weekly and daily gospel input trains us for in our life of faith. If you're an East Gator here this morning who is above the average age of people here, there are, there are people here who are eagerly, desperately wishing that someone would help them learn the faith more thoroughly. Are you willing to help them on the way? Are you willing to help them in their discipleship? But thirdly, we need to remember that faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit belong together. Don't let anybody divorce them. If you haven't been baptized yet, please come and talk to me. We need, and if you haven't been baptized and you believe in Jesus, then please come and talk to me. We need to get you wet. But don't divide faith and baptism and the Holy Spirit. These things belong together. So, the first major side effect of sharing the gospel is that we get a whole gospel for a full faith. But the second major side effect of sharing the gospel is that everyone gets to hear the good news. The gospel is meant to go out with God's work in the world. And this is what happens as Paul spends a couple of years in Ephesus sharing the gospel with anyone who will give him an ear. And there are three primary ways we see the gospel going out so that everyone can hear. So I'll read the verses in verses 8 to 10, and then we'll review three ways that we see the gospel going out. He said, 
And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So how are people... How is everybody getting to hear the gospel? Well, firstly, we see that Paul is doing apologetics. The gospel goes out so that everyone can hear in apologetics. See how Paul reasoned and persuaded. Now, apologetics is just a fancy word that means reasoned arguments in justification of a theory or doctrine. Apologetics is, is what we do when we answer questions about Christianity, when we, when we encounter objections and we try to provide a reasonable answer. It's what we do when we share why believing in Jesus is a good and rational thing. Sometimes it seems foolish to believe, but people need to see that there are good reasons to believe in Jesus. And so that's what we're doing when we try and show others why we should believe in Jesus. It's part of evangelism. Apologetics is giving a defense of your faith. Something that Peter commands us to do in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And this is what Paul was doing while he spent time in Ephesus. He started in the synagogue, teaching, reasoning, and persuading people to believe in Jesus, the Christ. And we also see one of the negative side effects of sharing the gospel, that that there was stubbornness and people started to speak evilly about them. But when people became calloused and they rejected it, rejected the gospel, they moved the church to a new location and continued reasoning and persuading in their new location. Which brings me to part B. The gospel goes out so that everyone can hear by church planting. Ideally, all the Jews in the synagogue, whose faith was directed towards a coming Messiah, would have received Jesus willingly, and the whole synagogue would have just been transformed transformed into a New Testament church. But sadly, that's not the case. Instead, Paul has to take those new disciples, those believers, and they have to start meeting somewhere else. So Paul follows the pattern of Christians planting churches, finding a place and gathering it in that place. It's not about the building, it's about the people who are there. But it's just like us, who in order to come here, we had to rent this facility so that we could meet regularly together. Um, Here we have something of what Paul was probably meeting in with the church in Ephesus. This is a rich person's house. So when you think about house churches in the New Testament, don't think about a four-bedroom house in the suburbs. Or when they talk about a hall, don't think about like this kind of hall or those wooden halls that you find in every small town. This is a rich person's house. This is their foyer. These are all tables. That's the size of a person over there. It's, it's, the foyer is bigger than many apartments, but it is somebody's house. And over the back there, you can see a, a big opening, and that's a hall at the back of the house, which this is a close-up. 
you see there's a doorway down there. It's a quite a large space, reminiscent of um, churches that start getting built a few centuries later. So when Paul was meeting in the hall of Tyrannus, it's probably, and the disciples were meeting, it's probably in something like this. A big uh, space where that they can gather, where they can gather a lot of people, and where they can meet and they can persuade and they can preach the gospel, where they can disciple, where they can train and equip people for ministry. And from here, these people can go out into the world and make more disciples, planting more churches, until everyone hears the good news. And that brings us to C. The gospel is shared intentionally so that everyone can hear. Paul's work in Ephesus over two years meant that people all over the region heard about Jesus, either by direct contact with Christians or by reputation spreading, as we'll see later on in the passage. The the spread was so complete that they could say that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Think about that for a second. Imagine, uh, for instance, in our own context, being able to say that after two years of intentionally sharing the gospel, all the residents of Toowoomba heard the word of the Lord, both Christian and non-Christian. See, God works over time. You know, it's not always going to be instantaneous. Paul was there for a while. It didn't just happen overnight. Sometimes we're tempted to get frustrated as it doesn't seem to take, it doesn't seem to happen quick enough. But month in, month out, gospel ministry is effective when we intentionally go to to share the gospel. It may not be two years for us, it might be six months or 80 years, but as the good news is intentionally shared, everyone gets to hear it and God does his work in people's lives. So that's the second side effect that we see in this passage, that sharing the gospel means that everyone gets to hear the good news. But the third side effect of sharing the gospel is that we get to see God's work and glory revealed. You see, God sends Christians out as ambassadors of the gospel, taking the message out. And God, by his spirit and power, works in people's hearts in the world. And that's what happens here. Paul is out in the world working hard to herald in the kingdom of God. And God works through Paul with miracles to give people both a foretaste of what is to come in the kingdom of God, but also these miracles act as a proof. They act to support the message of the gospel. They show that the message is legitimate. And we see in verse, see what's happening in verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. When you read this, you might be tempted to think you've stopped reading the Bible and you've opened up a page from a fantasy novel with... uh, with enchanted aprons and magic hankies. But, do you notice who's doing the healing here? It's not so much the method that's important with hankies and aprons, it's the who. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles. 
Paul is an instrument. The hankies and the aprons are tools. But it's God who's doing the work. God is the one to marvel at. This miracle fits right in with the pattern of the Bible. As you read across the pages of Scripture, it's not common for miracles to be repeated and done in the same way. Because it's not about the method of doing the miracles. You know, Moses holds his staff above his head back in the Old Testament to win a battle. Or later on, Elijah parts water with a cloak. Sometimes the water is parted other ways. Jesus, sometimes he heals people by spitting in the dust and making mud to put on their eyes. Sometimes he doesn't even show up to a miracle. He just does it remotely. The point is not how the miracle is done. The point is that God is doing the work. There's not a magic formula or style that makes miracles happen. We're not meant to notice a magical style that therefore now everybody must be healed by hankies. It's, we're noticing that God was doing extraordinary miracles to support the spread of his gospel. And in this case, in Ephesus, God uses sweaty rags and dirty work aprons to show his power and reinforce the gospel message. And as if to prove the point that it's God's work and magic incantations or relics or mystical incantations that are effective, we have another story about what happens when you try to use Jesus' name as a magic spell. From verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So these guys had heard about or maybe seen the power of God at work in the name of Jesus Christ. And they thought they could co-opt it for themselves. If it works for Paul, it'll work for us, right? You know, cast, the exorcism business is, is pretty heavy going. Every little bit helps. But it's a big mistake. They tried to invoke the power of Jesus without actually being on Jesus' side. They didn't have backup. It's like, um, it's like some kids in a playground. Imagine in the primary school playground, there's some little kids and they're being bullied by a bigger kid. And the little kids say, look, if you don't leave us alone, I'm going to get my big brother Harry over there to come and beat you up. And the bully says, I know Harry and he's not related to you. You're bluffing. And then proceeds to beat the little kids up. There's no use invoking the name of somebody whom you have no connection with. And that's what these guys were doing. And Jesus' name isn't something to be used as a magic spell. And this whole story uh, where they get beat up and they have to do a little nudie run across town, it, it spreads around and people start to fear the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus either enrages demons in the wrong hands or when it's used by people who belong to Jesus, it's powerful because God works through them. 
it's not normally the way that we think about spreading the fame of Jesus or, or the good news going out, but that's what the effect is. The effect is that God is glorified. We get to see God at work through these people misusing God's name. The result of sharing the gospel means that people everywhere got to hear and they got to see God's power and glory revealed. You see, God matches his word with signs of its authenticity, sometimes with fear-inspiring events like demons getting um, carried away, sometimes outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen with speaking in tongues and with healing. But always God's work is matched with work in people's hearts, where we see changed hearts. And we'll see more of that further on. Sometimes God's work and glory will be revealed in the flashy and fantastical. Sometimes it's quiet and ordinary. But God always works with the outpouring of his gospel. So that is the third side effect of sharing the gospel. And the fourth side effect of sharing the gospel is that we change for the better. This is, the, this is what happens in Ephesus. When people hear about Jesus, their lives were changed. They came and they confessed their sins. They came repenting. They came giving up their evil ways that they had held on to. Let's look at verse 18 to 20. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So it seems that these people were people who were already believing in Jesus, but they were still holding on to some of their old ways. And so they've been convicted of their sin. They've come to realize that these magic arts and the magic books that they had could not fit with Jesus. Jesus and paganism do not go together. You can't have a bit of Jesus on one side and a bit of the occult on the other. You can't serve two masters. So these believers, in repentance... They come confessing and they bring all their scrolls and of incantations and stuff and they burned it all. It was a massive statement both to society and to the spiritual world that they were getting rid of this evil stuff and they were on Jesus' team. And, you know, I did some sums on 50,000 pieces of silver. I reckon a modern equivalent would be about $10 million worth of stuff or 136 years of wages. It was a huge amount of money. And having encountered Jesus, they were willing to give up all this valuable stuff that they had held on to and treasured before. They were emphatically jumping ship, rejecting everything that was opposed to God. They were purging the evil stuff from among them. And the purging, the burning of the stuff, outward stuff was a reflection of what was going on in their hearts. They were getting rid of everything that didn't fit with Jesus. Everywhere we turn in the Scriptures, we see people whose lives are changed for the better when they encounter Jesus. For the people of Acts and for us today, today, when we encounter Jesus, we encounter Him through the message that has been brought to us. And the message 
that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came from God as a man who died, who came as a sacrifice in our place, redeeming all of those who would put their faith and trust in him. But when we encounter Jesus, our lives are turned around. We're taken out of darkness and we're brought into light. We're taken from lives that are slaved to sin to being slaves of righteousness. We're taken from a world of demonic oppression to freedom in Jesus Christ. We're taken from hopelessness to hopeful, from guilt to guiltless. We're taken from shame to honour and from unholy to holy. The gospel goes out into the world and the side effect is that we change for the better. We're turned around and put on the right path. We grow and we mature in faith as we're perfected by King Jesus. We're being purified and sanctified in the Holy Spirit so that we would be pleasing to God. You know, once we've come into the household, we can't remain rebellious. I'm sure, parents, you've felt the simultaneous feelings of being both loving your children but being absolutely horrified with them at the same time. They're your kids and you would never give them up, but sometimes they get on the wrong side. You know, when they go into the kitchen and they stuff themselves full of biscuits when they knew they weren't allowed. Or when they find the water tap outside and, uh, and a few minutes later they're covered from top to toe in mud. You love them, you want what's best for them, but in those moments they have been disobedient, they have misbehaved, they've done what's wrong towards you. Now, you're not going to kick them out of the house, but you do want their behaviour to be changed, to be reformed. And it's like this with God. God saves us. Once he's saved us, we're saved. We're secure in his family, in his house. But being in his family, being in his house, means that we have to live according to his house rules. We're not allowed to disobey him. And in this case, it's not the trivial thing of of biscuits or mud that we have to keep away. It's much much weightier than that. We have to get rid of anything that stands in the way of God's pleasure. We're not trying to please God to stop him from kicking us out, but we are trying to do what pleases our Heavenly Father and bring him joy and honour. So friends, being part of the household of God means that we come confessing our evil practices, divulging our evil practices and getting rid of them. Now, I'm guessing that none of us here are dabbling in the occult. If you are, then please run away and run to Jesus. But most likely, our sins that we need to divulge are probably a lot more respectable as upstanding citizens. I wonder if you cover up your sin. Do you cover up your greed and discontentment by calling it a good work ethic? Do you have pride and arrogance, but you call it a big personality? Do you have worldliness in your heart, but you call it Christian freedom? Do you have anxiety and worry that you blame on past experiences instead of taking responsibility now? 
Friends, God knows the sins that are in your heart. And he loves us all the same, but he doesn't want us to stay where we are. He wants to change our lives for the better. We cannot remain wallowing in the mud when he desires for us to be washed and dressed in clothes of righteousness. Jesus warns us in Matthew, he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. Or if your eye if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Friends, when we sin, when we hold on to our sin, we're playing with fire. And God doesn't want us to throw our lives away in sin. When we hear the gospel message, our lives must change for the better. Get rid of whatever causes you to sin. Come and confess to your brothers and sisters, divulge your practices, and destroy the evil things that are keeping you from full faith in Jesus. Remember, we are all sinners here. There are those amongst us here who have stolen and lied and cheated and deceived. There are people here who have watched pornography, cheated on their spouses and bedded somebody they weren't married to. We have people here who have used their tongue to tear people down, to slander and to spread rumours. We've had people here, we have people here who have repeatedly drunk too much, eaten too much, or been addicted to drugs. Friends, Jesus saves us from these things. Jesus changes and saves even murderers and rapists. Nothing that you've done can separate you from the love of God. But we must give it up. We must let go of it. We must repent. Turn around and chase after Jesus. So I ask you, what sinful habits do you need to repent of? The good news about Jesus comes, not so that we can justify our sin, but so that our lives can be changed for the better. Folks, the side effect of receiving the gospel is that lives change for the better. Sometimes... That has included miraculous healing, as we've seen in our passage, but it always includes spiritual healing, repenting. Changes on the inside are just as much the work of God and bring Him glory as the miracles on the outside. So let's recap where we've been this morning. We were asking the big question... What are the side effects of sharing the gospel in this passage? And we've seen four big side effects. We get the whole gospel for a full faith. When the gospel is shared, people are able to grow in faith and actually enter into faith. The other next side effect of sharing the gospel is that everyone hears the good news. The next side effect is that we get to see God's work and glory. And fourthly, when the gospel is shared, we change for the better. All of these things flow out of the good news about Jesus Christ. 
Sure, sometimes there will be a couple negative side effects. People will reject us, sometimes from our own families. Sometimes there will be persecution. But those side effects are worth the positive side effects, the overwhelming benefits. The, the positive side effects far outweigh the negative. But friends, as we've gone through this passage, we've seen time and time again that there needs to be somebody who takes the gospel out. Somebody has to go and share it. It doesn't just happen by itself. Friends, it's our job as Christians to be ambassadors of Christ in the world, to take the gospel out. The side effects are coming, but somebody needs to take the medicine. If, if nobody gets the medicine, then they can't be healed. Our world is sick and broken and we need somebody to bring the medicine. Would you please take the medicine out to the sick and broken world so that people can receive these positive side effects? The word of God, the gospel, will prevail mightily in the hands of a mighty God. So please take it out there so that everyone can share in these side effects. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as people who need to divulge our evil practices, as people who have held on to things of the world, to, to evil things, even though we've been brought into the kingdom of, of God. Lord, help us to put away everything, put away everything that causes us to sin, to cut it off. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this good news that changes lives. Lord, we ask that you would help us to take it out into the world so that people can hear it. And we thank you, Lord, that week after week we get to come together and we get to hear the good news. We get to grow in faith. We thank you, Lord, that we have your word in our homes. We thank you, Lord, that we have, uh, we have such free access to it. We thank you, Lord, that we have community groups where we get together and we get to hear the good news and get to grow in faith. We pray, Lord, that we would not take this for granted, but that we would be willing and wanting to see everyone hear this good news. Lord, help us to, to intentionally minister to those around us. Help us, Lord, to defend the faith well. Please guide us by your Holy Spirit so that your reput the reputation of Jesus Christ would be heard all over this area and all across the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing. And Lord, we rejoice that we get to see it and we get to bring you glory by being part of your people. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.